21, ID 7. If one honorable member wishes to tell another honorable member that he is anything but a gentleman, he should be particular to do so within the walls of the house as, in that case, the speaker will put him under arrest. To prevent any unpleasant consequences arising from his hasty expressions, hint 8. If a member promised to give his vote to the minister, he must in honor do so unless he happened to fall asleep in the smoking room, and so gets shut out from the division of the house. Hint 9. No independent member need trouble himself to understand the merits of any question before the house. He may, therefore, amuse himself at Bellamy's until five minutes before the speaker's bell rings for a division. Rather suicidal. The health of the Earl of Winchelsea and the conservative members of the House of Peers was followed amid intense cheering, with the glee of swearing death to traitor slaves, times, novel experiment, great screw, several scientific engineers have formed themselves into a company, and are about applying for an act of parliament to enable them to take a lease of Joe Hume, for the purpose of opposing the Archimedean screw, public feeling is already in favor of the Humidian, and the Joe shares are rising rapidly, punches information for the people, number three, one of the expedients adopted by the cheap knowledge mongers to convey so-called information to the vulgar has been, we flatter ourselves, successfully imitated in our articles on the stars and the thermometer. They are by writers engaged expressly for the respective subjects, because they will work cheaply and know but little of what they are writing about, and therefore make themselves the better understood by the equally ignorant. We do hope that they have not proved themselves behindhand in popular humbug and positive error and that the blunders in the thermometer are equally as amusing as those of the Dan Bigwig who wrote the treatise on animal mechanics, published by our rival Society for Diffusing Full Knowledge. One of these blunders the author must not be commended for, it is attributable to a facetious mistake of the printer, in giving the etymology of the thermometer, it should have been measure of heat, and not measure of feet. We scorn to deprive our devil of a joke so worthy of him. Another of their methods for obtaining cheap knowledge it is now our intention to adopt. Having got the poorest and least learned authors we could find of course for cheapness for our former pieces of information. We had this time engaged a gentleman to mystify a few commonplace subjects, in the style of certain articles in the Penny Cyclopedia, as his erudition is too profound for ordinary comprehensions as he scorns gain as the books he has hitherto published member private have been printed at his own expense for the greater convenience of reading them himself, for nobody else does so as, in short, he is in reality a cheap knowledge man, seeing that he scorns pay, and we scorn to pay him we have concluded an engagement with him for fourteen years, the subject on which we have directed him to employ his vast scientific acquirements, is one which must come home to the firesides of the married and the bosoms of the single, namely, the art of raising a flame, in humble imitation of some of Young's night's thoughts which are directed to the object of lightening the darkness of servants, laborers, artisans, and chimney sweeps, and in providing guides to the trades or services of which they are already masters or mistresses, we beg to present our readers with Punch's Guide to Service, O.R. Chapter 1. On the Process and Rationale of Lighting Fires. Take a small cylindrical aggregation of parallelopedal sections of the ligneous fiber vulgarly denominated a bundle of firewood, and arrange a fractional part of the integral quantity rectilineally along the interior of the igneous receptacle known as a grate, so as to form an acute angle of, say 25 degrees with its base, and one of, say 65 degrees with the posterior plane that is perpendicular to it, 
taking care at the same time to a leave between each parallelopedal section and interstice isometrical with the smaller sides of any one of their six quadrilateral superficies, so as to admit of the free circulation of the atmospheric fluid, superimposed upon this, arrange several moderate-sized concretions of the hydrocarburetted substance coal, approximating in figure as nearly as possible to the rhombic dodecahedron so that the solid angles of each concretion may constitute the different points of contact with those immediately adjacent. Insert into the cavity formed by the imposition of the ligneous fiber upon the inferior transverse ferruginous bar, a sheet of laminated lignin, or paper, compressed by the action of the digits into an irregular spheroid. These preliminary operations having been skillfully performed, the process of combustion may be commenced, for this purpose. A smaller woody parallelop the extremities of which have been previously dipped in sulfur in a state of liquefaction must be ignited and applied to the laminated lignin, or waste paper, and so elevate its temperature to a degree required for its combustion, which will be communicated to the ligneous superstructure, this again raises the temperature of the hydrocarburet concretion, and liberates its carburetted hydrogen in the form of gas, which gas, combining with the oxygen of the atmosphere, enters into combustion and a general ignition ensues, this, in point of fact, constitutes what is popularly termed, lighting a fire, an imminent breach, in an action lately tried at the cork assizes, a lady obtained 1500 pounds damages, for a breach of promise of marriage, against a faithless lover, Lady Morgan sends us the following trifle on the subject, what, 1500, teases some severe, the fine by far the injury of Ericis. For one poor breach of promise tease too dear to it be sufficient for a pair of breaches. School of Design. Several designing individuals, whose talents for drawing on paper are much greater than those of Charles Keane for drawing upon the stage, met together at Somerset House, on Monday last, to distribute prizes among their scholars. Prince Albert presided, gave away the prizes with great suavity, and made a speech which occupied exactly two seconds and a half. The first prize was awarded to Master Palmerston, for a successful design for completely frustrating certain commercial views upon China, and for his new invention of auto-painting, prize, and order upon Truefit for a new wig. Master John Russell was next called up. This talent young gentleman had designed a gigantic penny loaf, which, although too immense for practical use, yet, his efforts having been exclusively directed to fanciful design, and not to practical possibility was highly applauded. Master Russell also evinced a highly precocious talent for drawing his salary. Prize, a splendidly bound copy of the new marriage act. The fortunate candidate next upon the list, was Master Normandy. This young gentleman brought forward a beautiful design for a new prison, so contrived for criminals to be excluded from light and society, in any degree proportionate with their crimes. This young gentleman was brought up in Ireland but there evinced considerable talent in drawing prisoners out of Durant's vial. He was much complimented on the salutary effect upon his studies, which his pupilage at the School of Design had wrought. Prize, an order from Colburn for a new novel. Master Melbourne, who was next called up, seemed a remarkably fine boy of his age, though a little too old for his short jacket. He had signalized himself by an exceedingly elaborate design for the treasury benches. This elicited the utmost applause, for by this plan, the seats were so ingeniously contrived, that, once occupied, it would be a matter of extreme difficulty for the sitter to be absquatulated, even by main force, prize, a free ticket to the licensed gentler's dinner, the prince then withdrew, 
amidst the acclamations of the assembled multitude, a hint to the new Lord Chamberlain, there is always much difference of opinion existing as to the number of theatres which ought to be licensed in the metropolis, our friend Peter Borthwick, whose mathematical acquirements are only equaled by his heavy fathers, has suggested the following formula whereby to arrive at a just conclusion, take the number of theatres, multiply by the public houses, and divide by the descending chapels, and the quotient will be the answer. This is what Peter calls vocal evasion. Lady B. Who, it is rumored, has an eye to the bedchamber was interrogating Sir Robert Peel a little closer than the wily minister in Fudoral approved of. After several very evasive answers, which had no effect on the lady's pertinacity, Sir Robert made her a graceful bow, and retired, humming the favorite air of a pun from the row. It is asserted that a certain eminent medical man lately offered to a publisher in Peter Noster Row a treatise on the hand, which the worthy bibliopole declined with a shake of the head, saying, My dear sir, we have got too many treatises on our hands already. Pleasures of hope rather expensive. The commerce states the cost of the mansion now building for Mr. Hope, in the Rue Street Dominique, including furniture and objects of art, is estimated at £600,000. If this is an attribute of hope, what is reality? Education punch. Fashions for the month. We perceive that the severity of the summer has prevented the entire banishment of furs in the fashionable quartiers of the metropolis. We noticed three fur caps, on Sunday last, in seven dials. Beavers are, however, superseded by gossamers, the crowns of which are, among the elite of street gileses, jauntily open to admit of the elation, in anticipation of the warm weather. Freeze coats are fast giving way to pea jackets, waistcoats, it is anticipated, will soon be discarded, and brass buttons are completely out of vogue. We have not noticed so many high lows as bluchers upon the understandings of the promenaders of Broad Street, and jacks are, we perceive, universally adopted at the elegant soirees dances, nightly held at the Frog and Fiddle, in Pie Street, Westminster, artistic execution. We understand that Sir M. A. She is engaged in painting the portraits of Sir Willoughby Wollstone Dixie and Mr. John Bell, the lately elected member for Thirsk, which are intended for the exhibition at the Royal Academy. If Falyadov's account of their dastardly conduct in the Waldegrave affair be correct, we cannot imagine two gentlemen more worthy the labors of the new parliamentary returns. We have been informed, on authority upon which we have reason to place much reliance that several distinguished members of the upper and lower houses of parliament intend moving for the following important returns early in the present session, in the Lords. Lord Palmerston will move for a return of all the Papillot papers contained in the red box at the foreign office. The Duke of Wellington will move for a return of the Tory taxes. The Marquess of Downshire will move for a return of his political honesty. Lord Melbourne will move for a return of place and power. The Marquess of Westmeath will move for a return of the days when he was young. The Marquis Wellesley will move for a return of the pap spoons manufactured in England for the last three years. In the Commons, Sir Francis Burdett will move for a return of his popularity in Westminster. Lord John Russell will move that the return of the Tories to office is extremely inconvenient. Captain Rees will move for a return of the number of high-spirited Tories who were conveyed on stretchers to the different station houses. On the night of the ever-to-be-remembered Drury Lane dinner. Sir E. L. Bolluer will move for a return of all the halfpenny ballads published by Catmock and Company during the last year. Morgan O'Connell will move for a return of all the brogues worn by the barefoot peasantry of Ireland. Colonel Sithorpe will move for a return of his wits. 
Peter Borthwick will move for a return of all the kettles convicted of singing on the Sabbath day. Sir Robert Peel will move for a return of all the ladies of the palace to the places from whence they came. Ben Disraeli will move for a return of all the hard words in Johnson's dictionary. Rather ominous. The Sunday Times states that several of the heads of the Conservative Party held a conference at Whitehall Gardens. Heads and conferences have been cut short enough at the same place ere now. Heavy lightness. A joke call. Sithorpe to the journal send appropriate heading, serious accident. A matter of course. The match at cricket, between the Chelsea and Greenwich pensioners, was decided in favor of the latter. Captain Rees says, no great wonder, considering the winners bad the majority of legs on their side. The Hillies affair has made him an authority. The drama, the Italian opera, retirement of R.U.B.I.N.I., exclusive, N.B. Punch is delighted to perceive, from the style of this critique, that, though anonymously sent, it is manifestly from the pen of the elegant critic of the Morning Post. On a review of the events of the past season, the souvenirs it presents are not calculated to elevate the character of the arts di poeta and di musica, of which the Italian opera is composed. The only decided new views which made their appearance, were, Fausta, and, Roberto di Vero, both of them jejune as far as regards their libretto and the composito musicale, the latter opera, however, serving as it did to introduce a pleasing refatchimento of the lamented Malibran, in her talent sister Pauline Madame Viardot, may, on that account, be remembered as a pleasing reminiscence of the past season, the evening of Saturday, August 21st will long be remembered by the habitués of the opera. From exclusive sources which have been opened to us at a very considerable expense we are enabled to communicate malheurismant that with the close of the size on the 1841, the core operatic loses one of its most brilliant ornaments. That memorable epoche was chosen by Rubini for making a graceful congé to a fashionable audience. Amidst an abundance of tears shed in the choicest Italian and showers of bouquets, the subjects chosen for representation were apropos in the extreme, all being of a triste character, namely, the editors of Marino Faliero, the finale of Lucia di Lammermoor, and the last party of La Sonambula, these were the chosen vehicles for Rabinai Soiree de Dieu, as this tenor primissimo has, in a professional regard, disappeared from amongst us as the last echoes of his boy Magnific have died away as he has made a final exit from the public plafond to the coulisses of private life we deem it due to future historians of the Italian opera de Londres, to a record our admiration, our opinions, and our regrets for this great artiste. Signor Rubini is in stature what might be denominated just milieu, his tail is graceful, his figure pleasing, his eyes full of expression, his hair bushy, his comport upon the stage when not excited by passion, is full of verb and brusquery, but in passages which the maestro has marked, compassion, nothing can exceed the elegance of his attitudes, and the pleasing dignity of his gestures, after, par exemple, the recitative I, what a pretty impressment he gave, alas, that we must now speak in the past tense, to the tonic or keynote, by locking his arms in each other over his poitrine by that after expansion of them that clever alto movement of the toes that apparent embracing of the fumes to lamps how touching. Then, while the symphonia of the Andante was in progress, how gracefully he turned Sundas to the delighted auditors, and made an interesting promenade au fond, always contriving to get his finely arched nose over the lumieres at the precise point of time we speak in a musical sense where the word, vos, is marked in the score. His pantomime to the allegory was no less captivating, 
but it was in the strat that his beauty of action was most exquisitely apparent, there, worked up by an elaborate crescendo the motivo of which is always, in the Italian school, a simple progression of the diatonic scale, the furor with which this cantratus hurried his hands into the thick lumps of his picturesque curric, and seemed to tear its cheveau out by the roots without, however, disturbing the celebrated side parting a single hair the vigor with which he beat his breast his final expansion of arms, elevation of toes, and the impressive rap of his right foot upon the stage immediately before disappearing behind the coulisses must be fresh in the souvenir of our dilettante readers, but how shall we parl concerning his boy, that exquisite organ, whose falsetto emulated the sweetness of flutes, and reached to a flat and altissimo the voce media of which possessed an unequaled aplomb, whose deep double G must still find a well-in-tune echo in the tympanum of every amateur of taste, that, we must confess, as critics and theoretical musicians, causes us considerable embarrassment for words to describe, who that heard it on Saturday last, has yet recovered the ravishing sensation produced by the thrilling tremor with which Rubini gave the knot drawer, in Rossini's, Marino Faliero, who can forget the recitativo con andante and allegro, in the last scene of, La Sonambula, or the burst of anguish con expressivissimo, when accused of treason, while personating his favorite role in, Lucia di Lammermoor, ah, those who suffered themselves to be detained from the opera on Saturday last by mere illness, or other light causes, will, to translate a forcible expression in the, Inferno, of Dante, go down with sorrow to the grave, to them we say, Rabbi established party gone, he has sent forth his last duty concluded his last reign his ultimate note has sounded his last billet to bank his pocketed he has, to use an emphatic and heart-stirring mo, coops on baton, it is due to the sentiments of the audience of Saturday, to notice the evident regret with which they received Rabinai's adieus, for, towards the close of the evening, the secret became known, animated conversations irony resounded from almost every box during many of his most charming piano passages and never will his sotto voce be equal the voce esprits of the pint discussed his merits with audible doubt, while the gallery and upper stalls remained in mute grief at the consciousness of, that being the dernier voice they would ever be able to hear the sublime voce detesta of Italy's Prince of Tenori, although this retirement will make the present closure of the opera one of the most memorable evenings in L's and L's to l'opera. Yet some remarks are demanded of us upon the other artists. In, Marino Faliero, Lablica came the Dutch with remarkable success. Mabel, Loway, far from deserving her B.A.'s nom, was the height of perfection, and gave her celebrated Shana in the last-named opera of Ekin for Super Bay. Persiani looked remarkably well, and wore a most becoming robe in the role of Amina. Of the dancers we had hardly space to speak. Sarato exhibited the poetry of motion with her usual skill particularly in a difficult paw with Albert, the ballet was all diable amuru, and the stage was watered between each act, the great Uanaceniables, it seems that the English opera house has been taken for twelve nights, to give, a free stage and fair play, to, every English living dramatist, considering that the council of the dramatic authors theatre comprises at least half a dozen Shakespeare's in their own conceit, to say nothing of one or two row soft ones of course, a sprinkling of otwice, with here and there a mass anger, we may calculate pretty correctly how far the stage they have taken possession of is likely to be free, or the play to be fair towards every English living dramatist, it appears that a small knot of very great geniuses have been, for some time past, regularly sending certain bundles of paper, called dramas, round to the different metropolitan theatres, 
and is regularly receiving them back again. Some of these geniuses, goaded to madness by the unceremonious treatment, have been guilty of the insanity of printing their plays, and, though the rejected addresses were a very good squib, the rejected dramas are much too ponderous a joke for the public to take, so that, while in their manuscript form, they always produced speedy returns from the managers, they, in their printed shape, caused no returns to the publishers. It is true, that a personal acquaintance of some of the authors with notes of the Northeastern Independent, or some other equally influential country print, may have gained for them, now and then, an egregious puff, wherein the writers are said to be equal to good, a cut above Sheridan Alls, and the only successors of Shakespeare, but we suspect that, the mantle of the Elizabethan poets, which is said to have descended on one of these gentry, would, if inspected, turn out to be something more like Fitzball's Tongiani or Dibbenpitt's Macintosh. No one can suspect Punch of any prestige in favor of the restrictions laid upon the drama for our own free and easy habit of erecting our theater in the first convenient street we come to, and going through our performance without caring a rush for the Lord Chamberlain or the Middlesex magistrates, must convince all who know us, that we are for a thoroughly free trade in theatricals, but, nevertheless, we think the great enactables talk egregious nonsense when they prate about the possibility of their efforts working a beneficial alteration in a law which presses so fatally on dramatic genius. We think their tomfoolery more likely to induce restrictions that may prevent others from exposing their mental imbecility than to encourage the authorities to relax the laws that might hinder them from doing so. The boasted compliance with legal requisites in the mode of preparing Martinezzi for the stage is not a new idea and we only hope it may be carried out one half as well as in the instances of Romeo and Juliet as the law directs, and Othello according to Act of Parliament. There is a vaster amount of humbug in the playbill of this new concern, than in all the open puffs that have been issued for many years past from all the regular establishments. The tirade against the law the announcement of alterations in conformity with the law the hint that the musical introductions are such as the law may require mean nothing more than this if the piece is damned. It's the law, if it succeeds, it's the author's genius. Now, everyone who has written for the illegitimate stage, and therefore punching particular, knows very well that the necessity for the introduction of music into a piece played at one of the smaller theaters is only nominal that four pieces of verse are interspersed in the copy sent to the licensor, but these are such matters of utter course, that their invention or selection is generally left to the prompter's genius. The piece island in less essentially musical, licensed with the songs and acted without or, at least, there is no necessity whatever for retaining them. Why, therefore, should Mr. Stevens drag solos, duets, choruses, and other musical arrangements, into his drama, unless it is that he thinks they will give it a better chance of success, while, in the event of failure, he reserves the right of turning round upon the law and the music, which he will declare were the means of damning it. A set of briefless barristers all would be Erskines, Thurlows, or Eldons, that the least might as well complain of the system that excludes them from the Woolsack, and take a building to turn it into a court of chancery on their own account, as that these luckless scribblers, all fancying the Elizabethan mantle has fallen flop upon their backs, should set themselves up for Shakespeare's on their own account, and seize on a metropolitan theatre as a temple for the enshrinement of their genius. If Punch has dealt hardly with these gentlemen, it is because he will bear no brother near the throne of humbug and quackery, like a steward who tricks his master, but keeps the rest of the servants honest, 
Punch will gammon the public to the utmost of his skill, but he will take care that no one else shall exercise a trade of which he claims by prescription the entire monopoly. Punch. O.R. The London C.H.A.R.I.V.A.R.I. Volume 1. For the week ending September 5, 1841. The Gentleman's Own Book. Our consideration must now be given to those essentials in the construction of a true gentleman the cut, ornaments, and pathology of his dress. The cut is to the garment what the royal head and arms are to the coin the insignia that give it currency, no matter what the material, gold or copper, Saxony or sackcloth, the dye imparts a value to the one, and the shears to the other. Ancient Greece still lives in its marble demigods, the vivifying chisel of Phidias was thought worthy to typify the sublimity of Jupiter. The master hand of Canova wrought the Parian block into the semblance of the seaborn goddess, giving to insensate stone the warmth and ethereality of the Paphian paragon, and Stoltz, with his grace bestowing shears, has fashioned west of England broadcloths, and fancy goods, into all the nobility and gentility of the blue book, the court guide, the army, navy, and lawless, for 1841, wondrous and kindred arts. The sculptor wrests the rugged block from the rocky ribs of his mother earth, the tailor clips the implicated, long hogs, from the prolific backs of the living mud, the toothless saw, plied by an unwearing hand, prepares the stubborn mass for the chisel's tracery, the loom, animated by steam that gigantic child of walls and and water, twists and twines the unctuous and pliant fleece into the silky Saxony, the first growth of wool, the sculptor, seated in his studio, throws loose the reins of his imagination, and, conjuring up some perfect ideality, seeks to impress the beautiful illusion on the rude and indigest mass before him. The tailor spreads out, upon his ample board, the happy broadcloth, his eyes scan the measured proportions of his client, and, with mystic power, guides the obedient pike clay into the graceful diagram of a perfect gentleman. The sculptor, with all the patient perseverance of genius, conscious of the greatness of its object, chips, and chips, and chips. From day to day, and as the stone quickens at each touch, he glows with all the pride of the creative Prometheus, mingled with the gentler ecstasies of paternal love, the tailor, with fresh ground shears, and perfect faith in the gentility and solvency of his client, snips, and snips, and snips, until the superfine grows, with each abscission, into the first style of elegance and fashion, and the excited Schneider feels himself every inch a king, his shop a herald's college and every brown paper pattern garnishing its walls, an escutcheon of gentility, but to dismount from our Pegasus, or, in other words, to cut the poetry, and come to the practice of our subject, it is necessary that a perfect gentleman should be cut up very high, or cut down very low i.e. up to the Marquis or down to the Jarvie, any intermediate style is perfectly inadmissible, for who above the grade of an attorney would wear a coat with pockets inserted in the tails, like salt boxes, or any but an incipient Escalipes indulging trousers that evinced a morbid ambition to become knee breeches, and were only restrained in their aspirations by a pair of most strenuous straps. We will now proceed to details. The dressing gown should be cut only for the armholes, but be careful that the quantity of material be very ample say four times as much as is positively necessary, for nothing is so characteristic of a perfect gentleman as his improvidence. This garment must be constructed without buttons or buttonholes, and confined at the waist with cable-like bell ropes and tassels. This elegant decibel had its origin like the Corinthian capital from the acanthus in accident. A set of massive window curtains having been carelessly thrown over a lay figure, or tailor's torso, in Nugi's studio, 
in Street James's Street, suggested to the luxuriant mind of the Agnesian Dorsey, this beautiful combination of costume and upholstery, the 18-shilling chintz greatcoats, so ostentatiously put forward by nefarious tradesmen as dressing gowns, and which resemble pattern cards of the vegetable kingdom, are unworthy the notice of all gentlemen of course excepting those who are so by act of parliament, although it is generally imagined that the coat is the principal article of dress, we attach far greater importance to the trousers, the cut of which should, in the first place, be regulated by nature's cut of the leg, a gentleman who labors under either a convex or a concave leg, cannot be too particular in the arrangement of the strap draft, by this we mean that a concave leg must have the pull on the convex side, and vice versa, the garment being made full, the effects of bad nursing are, by these means, effectually, repealed, this will be better understood if the reader will describe a parallelogram, and draw there in the arc of a circle equal to that described by his leg, whether not neat or bandy, Bailey's, if the leg be perfectly straight, then the principal peculiarity of cut to be attended to, is the external assurance that the trousers cannot be removed from the body without the assistance of a valet, the other considerations should be their applicability to,